Hello, I'm David Aiken. Welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, March 18th. On the show this week, the security of our electoral system, new calls to tighten political finance rules and harden our cybersecurity defenses. Is Canada ready in case a foreign power tries to hack the 2019 general election? Then, sanctions, expulsions and condemnations. What will stop Russia from floating the rules-based world order? And after another wild week in Washington, we'll unpack the politics of the Canada-U.S. relationship. But first, the foundation of Canada's democracy is free and fair elections. But that foundation is under threat like never before, from foreign hackers to foreign financial influence. Ottawa is taking notice. But just how vulnerable is our federal electoral system? Here's your West Block primer. It was the story of the 2016 U.S. presidential election, fake news stories about Hillary Clinton filling Facebook feeds and Twitter streams. And the same could happen in Canada in 2019. There are plenty of weak spots. Hackers could target political parties to steal voter lists, emails, party strategies, or they could target Elections Canada sites for much of the same information. Malicious robocalls could misdirect voters on polling day. State-sponsored hackers in Russia or China are a likely threat, but election hackers could try to botch the ballot on behalf of commercial interests, terror groups, or anyone else threatened by a stable and strong Canadian democracy. Joining me now is Scott Bryson. He is the president of the Treasury Board, but he is also the temporary minister for democratic institutions. Well, Permanent Minister Karina Gould is on leave with her new baby. And that's kind of a neat first for you and your cabinet to have the first ever cabinet minister in our history take a maternity leave. It's great, and it makes sense because it's 2018. Because it's 2018. Thanks. And so here you are with some extra work to do as the Minister of Democratic Institutions. Um, and there's, we know what was in uh, Minister Gould's mandate letter, but I wanted to perhaps talk to you a little bit about the, the election security for 2019. And I guess the first place to start is there have been some studies, has been some reports, but um, a week into the portfolio, what's your sense of where we might be vulnerable so far as securing our election, making sure citizens know that the results are results they can trust? Well, it's, an, it's a very important question, David, because we have a responsibility to protect and to defend the integrity of our electoral system. Uh, this is something we take seriously, and as a government, one of the first things we did was to commission a communication security establishment of Canada, uh, CSIC, to actually do a thorough study of the cyber risk to the Canadian electoral system. Uh, they looked at the 2015 election and did an analysis that, that uh, well, they, in fact, there was not significant uh, foreign interference in the 2015 election. But their analysis globally indicated that over the last year, 13% of the elections in the world had some level of foreign interference. Mm -hmm. So what that means for us as a government is we've got to be vigilant, particularly as we move forward towards the 2019 election. Uh, we've got to take a whole-of-government approach, which we're doing with DND, public safety, democratic institutions, even Heritage Canada, global affairs. Uh, the leadership role that we're playing at democratic institutions is important. Uh, it's important to realize that CSEC 
is one of the most respected uh, cyber agencies uh, in the world in terms of cybersecurity. Um, and we're, we, we are ensuring that we take every step in Canada to ensure, again, the integrity of our electoral system, including Budget 2018. Well, I was going to bring that up, we, $750 million over the next five years. Absolutely. And, Not and, all of that is going to go to secure our election, but I assume some of it is going to be. A significant part of it will be towards cybersecurity for elections, but what we do in Canada is really important. What we do multilaterally, because other countries, mm -hmm. uh, their governments are facing similar challenges. We've so, seen in the UK with the Brexit referendum. Absolutely. Sure. And what, what we need to do is to learn from other countries, share best practices, uh, and, and ensure that we're doing everything we can uh, to protect the integrity of our electoral system. That's what Canadians deserve and, and demand, and we're going to make sure that happens. Is there some specific things that you can identify to say we've identified a particular vulnerability at Elections Canada or the House of Commons? And I know I've talked to the House of Commons chief information officer. That gets tens of thousands, I understand, of... Uh, cyber attacks or probes uh, on a daily basis, right. but are there some specific things that, that might be under consideration? Well, first of all, it's a whole-of-government approach that we have to take, and we're taking that very seriously. Uh, it's also a whole-of-society mm -hmm. approach. Uh, citizens uh, themselves have a responsibility, and we have a, a responsibility as government to make sure that we're providing the right information to citizens to ensure that they can, can actually do that. So if, if Canadians go to the website getcybersafe.gc.ca, they will find helpful tips that we have compiled uh, based on what other countries, but also what we've identified as potential risks in Canada. Again, this is written by our own spies or anti-spy establishment, yeah, we're, these tips. We're, we're, we're actually garnering that type of information from our own security mm -hmm. establishment. Getcybersafe.gc.ca. Canadians can go, uh, they can learn, and they can apply these practices in their own lives to protect their own cybersecurity, uh, which is important. From I mean, Canadians are doing their, their banking online. Of course, banks have, our Canadian banks are global leaders mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with cyber threats. Our government, increasingly, Canadians, 90% of Canadians did their taxes online right. last year. 68% of Canadians are doing almost all their banking online. So and, and yet we saw this week, StatsCan lost a pile of census forms. I mean, there's sometimes it's... it's Giving your stuff sure. to the government doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to get lost. It, no, things no. can happen. And, and it's important to realize that analog systems uh, can have security issues mm -hmm. as well. Digital systems that are double authenticated uh, you know, can actually be as secure as analog systems if we get it right. Uh, but we've got to get it right, and that's one thing that our government takes very seriously uh, in terms of dealing with citizens' information on an ongoing basis, whether they're dealing with Health Canada or Immigration and Refugees Canada. Uh, or the electoral system. So we are, as a government, writ large, taking digital security and cyber threats very seriously. Let, let's move on to some of the other ways that get, uh, elections could be influenced, and that is uh, we have seen in, in any number of elections third parties uh, ahead of a writ period will start to advertise for or against a particular uh, position. And there's been suggestions from the left and the right that the money for some of that advertising is coming from uh, foreign donors. This week we saw the public policy forum, as you know, make some recommendations that we ought to tighten up our election financing regime, particularly with regards to third parties and foreign money. Are you able to say that that's a priority that you'll be able to move forward on in the next, in the before the spring rises, the session rises this spring? Well, it's a priority to do everything we can to protect the integrity of our system, and and uh, I've I've just uh, had an opportunity to read through the public policy forum report, and they presented some some very interesting. Uh, ideas, including looking at um, 
applying some level of limitation in terms of the timing of uh, third-party mm -hmm. spending uh, on advertising. Uh, these are things we will consider as we move forward. And balancing, again... Would you have to have something in place so soon? I mean, we're not that far from campaign time. You're right. There is there is a, certainly an urgency to this, but we also have to balance between, again, protecting the integrity of our electoral system, with also also recognizing the importance of free speech. Mm -hmm. And and uh, there is a, a balance in, in the same way that there's a balance between uh, understanding the difference between uh, chat bots operated by uh, foreign organizations aimed at deliberately thwarting uh, Canadian elections uh, versus free speech in Canada and people uh, expre expressing their opinions as citizens on social media. We have to always strike that important balance between free speech of Canadian citizens and, again, protecting the integrity of our system. All right. Scott Bryson, the temporary Minister of Democratic Institutions, best of luck with the job. Thanks for coming in. I, I, thank you very much, David. Great to see you. Thank you. So, what to do about Russian aggression? After the attempted murder in England, Britain expelled Russian diplomats. Canada and others issued statements condemning what it called despicable actions by Russia. And the Trump administration finally announced new sanctions in response to that attempted murder, but also in response to interference in the U.S. presidential election. But the key question is, will any of that get the Kremlin's attention? Michael O'Hanlon is a U.S. national security expert and senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. He's in Washington this morning. Michael, great to have you on the program. And I guess the first place to start, perhaps, is the West's response to this action. Is it sufficient? There's been a lot of chatter uh, both ways about that this week. You know, it's a great question. I was encouraged by the response in the first instance because I thought it was quite firm and it was telling that it came from several countries altogether. The language was direct. There were no there were no caveats about our confidence in our conclusions, even though we perhaps couldn't prove this in a court of law. We weren't going to be duped by some Russian story that they didn't know what was going on. We fully supported the British decision. It came in juxtaposition and coincidence with the imposition of more sanctions by the United States. That may have been a coincidence, but it was a happy coincidence. So I was encouraged. I thought this was a strong message. And most of all, it told Russia, you know, we are on to you. Uh, just because you deny things doesn't mean that most of the Western world gives you plausible deniability as if you were in a legal setting in a court of law. We're not stupid. We can figure out that if there's only one place this nerve agent was made and you've got a habit of state-sponsored assassination against your enemies, uh, we have no reason to think that anybody else did this but Russia. And so, on balance, I was encouraged by the response. Perhaps uh, other things will be necessary down the road, but I think this was a pretty good start. I, I want to zero in on the, the, the Trump administration's response because, as everybody knows, Trump himself has seemed to be reluctant to really tighten sanctions in the past against Russia for the whole collusion thing, election interference, whatever you want to call it. Um, what, in your mind, might have changed the White House's mind over the last week? Well, you know, I think that President Trump uh, recognizes that certain specific actions for which there is clear evidence need to be recognized for what they are. He gets touchy and testy about the 2016 election mm -hmm. for sort of obvious reasons. We shouldn't be too surprised that uh, even though he's, I think, making a mistake to uh, give Putin so much slack, that he doesn't want his own electoral mandate rendered illegitimate or in some way 
uh, challenged just because Russia may have been trying to help him win and may have been trying to hurt Hillary Clinton. You know, it was one of a hundred factors that went into that election. I personally don't think it was anywhere near the most important. And, uh, you know, I understand why President Trump would feel a little bit of hesitancy to be the first one to talk about Russia's role in that kind of shenanigan, even though Russian behavior was unacceptable. What Trump should be able to do, of course, is to clarify that going forward, any kind of initial inklings we saw of Russian interest in interfering with our elections will be opposed very strongly, and we have to expect more. I think he should be saying that. But on this issue, it's separate. This issue is a specific uh, act of violence on the territory of a NATO ally uh, against a person that Russia had no business and no right to attack. And so I'm glad that President Trump just called it as it is. The, the victim of this attack was a Russian agent who had been turned by the British, a double agent. And I assume the only way to read Russia's motive, Putin's motive in this, is uh, a message to anyone else. Don't be, uh, don't be a double agent. But he surely must have known this provocative action would have resulted in the exact response we saw from the West. Is it getting his attention? Is it likely to tour? I mean, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, a lot of people are trying to figure out his long game with some of these sorts of shenanigans. Well, I think the long game is exactly where Putin is weakest in general. So if you look at what he's done in Syria, in Ukraine, in Georgia, in other parts of Eastern Europe, you can understand the actions if you think in a short-term framework. He wants to prevent these countries from joining the West. He wants to weaken the United States and NATO. He thinks that we are too domineering around the world in how we handle various uh, foreign policy issues, that we act like a sole hyperpower, we the Americans in particular, but all the rest of you who are our NATO allies as well. And so you can understand that there's a sort of petulance, a sort of vindictiveness, uh, and a desire to reassert Russian prerogatives as Putin understands them. All those uh, motivations sort of make sense. I don't consider them very impressive or noble, but you can, you can sort of get inside his head. But what that does, of course, the actions he's taken in response to all those motivations have rendered Russia far more cut off from the world economy, uh, put Russia's economy into a bit of a tailspin, you know, really weakened Russia's ability ultimately to integrate with the outside world. And so he doesn't have a great long game. He's playing short-term tactics. That's always been his strength. He's pretty good at it. You know, he's had some success from Ukraine to Georgia to Syria, uh, admittedly in very brutal and nefarious ways. But, you know, he's pretty good at that. He's not so good at figuring out where this leaves Russia five or ten years down the road. We've seen sporting events have a big impact on world geopolitics with the Winter Olympics and the Koreas, perhaps a lessening of tensions there. There's another big sporting event this summer, the 2018 FIFA World Cup of Soccer. Russia's hosting. That certainly has got to be a big uh, banner of prestige for Russians and for Putin himself. Is that a potential lever that the West ought to make more use of? We know Britain is saying no ministers or senior officials are going to attend that. But is that something the West may want to consider, uh, using that sporting event as another lever? Well, you know, you use the term lever. A boycott would be sort of pure punishment. So that kind of a, of a idea is better as a possibility that you could raise in advance to try to induce better behavior. It's not so great when, after the fact, after a transgression, you decide to invoke that. I think we had no choice in 1980 when the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. That was mm -hmm. such an egregious, geostrategically fraught moment. This is a much more finite, specific thing. So, no, I would not boycott uh, the, the soccer championships over this particular issue. However, 
as you know, as we've been discussing, there's a lot more going on in Western relations with Russia, a lot more Russian transgressions. And if we can't see some progress in Syria, Ukraine, et cetera, uh, then you might be able to consider some kind of additional response. I also would like to see us in the United States, maybe under Secretary of State Pompeo, if he's confirmed, have a broader dialogue with Russia, where we're still very tough on them on some issues, like deterrence of aggression, but where we can rethink some of our strategy towards Eastern Europe, towards NATO expansion, uh, you know, trying to get Russia to pull its forces off of Ukraine and Georgia and allow those countries to join the European Union someday if we agree not to expand NATO. I think that kind of a dialogue is overdue and it would be good to have it. Uh, but, you know, those are the kind of big picture issues that you want to bring into a discussion about major boycotts or major incentives. I don't think you retaliate for one specific act of aggression uh, six months later. It's, it's not going to be very effective at sort of helping you then get to the next step in U.S.-Russia or NATO-Russia relations. Michael Handling of the Brookings Institute in Washington this morning. Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, it may have been a break week here in Ottawa, but there was plenty of political drama to go around from Trump's factual fiction to uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's mixed messages about Sikh extremism. And joining me now to unpack the politics are Marie Danielle Smith from the National Post and Yaroslav Baron, a principal at Ernst Cliff Strategy Group. So good to see you both here. And um, it was a bit of a crazy week. We started out with the steel and aluminum smelter tour as a prime minister Trudeau. We end with this very strange made-up event or whatever with uh, <laughs> Donald Trump on trade. Marie Danielle, I'll start with you. The, Get your sense of whether the Trudeau-Trump trade file is getting better, getting worse, getting weirder. What do you what do you make of the week? Well, things uh, took a turn for the weird this week when uh, Trump seems to have made up a meeting in which he made up statistics that were made up. Right. Uh, so <laughs> we you know we kind of we kind of see this and and think to ourselves, well, in a way though, it's also more of the same because uh, we're so unexpected with Trump. Uh, we don't know what's coming at any point, and. Uh, I think this is just kind of a continuation of the, the rhetoric that we've seen from him before, the bluster, uh, where he's trying to kind of throw us off our game. The bottom line is, will that affect NAFTA or not? And we've seen these sort of arguments about the trade deficit over and over. Mm -hmm. um, but those negotiations are still ongoing. No, nothing has changed. So let's wait and see. The professionals are still at their, at their, uh, at their post uh, negotiating. Uh, Yara, let me ask you about the general way that the Trudeau government has been managing the Trump White House relationship. They've had a strategy for a year to, quote, flood the zone. Mm -hmm. uh, they may have blown it on Asia, perhaps, on some foreign policy things with our Asian partners. But what's your sense on, on how they're doing with the White House? Look, they may have had a pretty disastrous streak on foreign policy generally, but on Canada-U.S., I honestly don't think that it's possible to be doing uh, something more than what they have been doing. I think it was a smart strategy, this multi-pronged, broad, charm offensive, leveraging premiers, business leaders, anybody who has relationships, going after governors, senators, congressmen south of the border to create you know, uh, in-house indigenous pressure in the U.S. Uh, that's the right approach, and I think they've been doing a pretty commendable job at it. And I assume, too, with the Marie Danielle, with the, the fact that we don't know who Trump's going to fire tomorrow. Um, that, that, that's a good strategy to make sure you know a lot of people because you're going to need to know a lot of people. Yeah, you make as many connections as possible and hope for the best. Yeah. All right, uh, Yaroslav, I want to switch uh, gears for a little bit. Uh, for Just so our viewers know, you have, in another lifetime, spent some time in a conservative war room for a couple of national elections. Mm -hmm. You've also been uh, overseas in the Ukraine to lead some uh, election monitoring. Uh, we had Minister Bryson, Scott Bryson, on the program today talking about yeah the potential threats to our, the security of our election in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, as a guy who knows elections inside out, what, what's, hmm. 
what do you think? Are we should we be satisfied with the security of, of our of our systems? Well, anybody who thinks that Canada is somehow immune uh, to interference, the kind of interference we've seen in other countries, is is being naive. Uh, there's no reason why we're special. In fact, Canada. Well, look, let's let's face it. The big offenders in this in this space are Russia interfering in other people's elections. Canada has been one of the most steadfast countries uh, standing up to Russia on the foreign policy level. So there's no reason to think that we'd be given a pass. That said. There are certain advantages in our system. We don't really have a digital component to our elections. We have it's paper, ba paper, ballot. paper ballots yes. counted by people, etc. So the idea of a massive hack of the system to falsify results isn't really possible. The big threats, the real threats, are the kinds of things we've seen in the U.S., in Brexit, in Czech, in Hungary, in Austria, in Germany, uh, which is the, the the false news, the social the social media push to influence opinion, and that's that's a lot harder to ward against. And just again to destabilize our democracy sure. or create doubt, demand uh, us all. Uh, you, we all have friends who are active or will be active in the war rooms for all three parties in this election. Mm -hmm. What about the parties themselves? What's your sense? I mean, we saw in the 2016 presidential election, it was John Podesta's emails that got hacked. It was the Democrats yeah. who were vulnerable. Do you think our parties are taking the security of their own systems uh, in seriously enough? Uh, every political party is making huge leaps forward on, on its own cybersecurity from election to election. It keeps getting tighter and people are taking this more seriously, and rightly so. But again, one, one additional benefit that we have in Canada, at least insofar as Russian interference, is that unlike other countries, we have generally something close to unanimity uh, in terms of our foreign policy facing Russia. No one's yes. soft on Russia. Yeah, there's right. no loose fish that they can try to target and bolster and, and try to prop them up. I mean, every, every significant political party sees them for what they are, uh, an oppressive totalitarian state that squashes dissent and invades its neighbors <laughs> and so on. There's no difference of opinion on that. Um, I'm going to switch gears again and come back to you, Marie Danielle, to talk about the NDP uh, yeah. and their leader, Jagmeet Singh. It was a week in which he started out uh, sort of dancing around how close he was to seek radicals, seek extremists, and he finished the week trying to clear things up and say he seemed to be against some things, but not necessarily. I think this is maybe a problem down the road for the NDP and Jagmeet Singh, but uh, what, what's your read of the situation? Well, these questions have uh, sort of plagued him from day one. Um, we saw that controversial interview with uh, Terry Malewski at CBC where he was questioned on his fir very first day as leader mm -hmm. on this issue. And, and what he kind of failed to do until this week was just categorically say that he believes in the, uh, the Supreme Court's decision on Air India. He believes that version of events and who was responsible. He never actually said that until this week. So I think for some people that might answer the question. But this kind of long simmering debate over uh, Sikh extremism, is it still an issue? Is it present in Canada? All these kind of questions have been boiling up for a while now. And he's going to have to answer more of them in the weeks to come. And in terms of, I don't know, you call it crisis communications yet for the New Democrats. But it hasn't been a great week for them to try and figure out how they're going to manage it. And it starts with their leader, wouldn't you no, say? It hasn't been a great week, but it's also a tough issue. And you'll notice, even yesterday, he didn't quite say directly he'd done it. He said, I accept the report. And, oh, yes, what you're referring to was one of the findings. He couldn't quite bring himself to say it explicitly and directly. But I, I've got to say, I, I have some sympathy uh, for him because it is a complex issue. And in politics, people are looking for quick and dirty, black and white, seven-second mm -hmm. soundbite uh, answers. And it's hard to do with, uh, with complex issues. Yeah, no, I agree with both of you. Yaroslav Baron of Ernst Lab Strategy and Bree Daniel Smith of the National Post. It's great to see you both. And uh, have a great Sunday.
Thanks, David. You too. I'm David Aiken. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast. Thank you.